Let's open our Bibles again to the book of Colossians as we continue in our series here in Colossians. Um, If you are fairly new to Cornerstone um, and you would like to see where we have been in the book of Colossians, uh, you can find that whole series on the Sermon Audio uh, website. If you just go to sermonaudio.com and look for our church, you'll find this series uh, in Colossians, and um, it's one concise place where that whole series can be found. If you want to review, perhaps you have been around for the whole series and you want to review where we've been, or perhaps you're new and you want to see how the Lord has been speaking to us and teaching us in recent months. Colossians chapter 2 is where we are this morning. Let's pick it up in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The focus of our attention this morning is on verse 9, where we find this incredible statement about Jesus Christ, our Savior, And Lord, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. From this statement, we draw today's big idea that is this Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. This miraculous union qualifies the Son of God to be our sin-bearing Savior and glorious Lord. The virgin birth brings deity and humanity together. As the angel said to Mary in Luke 1.35, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy the Son of God. Just as there is no gospel apart from the resurrection of Christ, there is no salvation apart from the incarnation of Christ. The virgin birth is essential to the doctrine of Christ and the salvation that Jesus came to provide for us as sinners. This doctrine, the doctrine of the incarnation, is essential to the Christian faith. In fact, according to the Apostle John, you cannot be a Christian and not believe that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 4 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits 
to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Clearly, Scripture teaches that you cannot be a Christian if you do not believe that God became man in the historical person of Jesus Christ. Occasionally, I pop onto Twitter for a few minutes, and my visit there is never very long, as it disheartens me more than it encourages me. But this week, a woman who presents herself as a United Methodist pastor posted the following statement, quote, a reminder that you don't have to believe that Adam and Eve were real, that Noah built an actual boat, or even in the literal version of the Christmas story to be a Christian. There are churches and whole denominations that see the complexity of the stories found in Scripture and the humanity of those who wrote them. Faith, being a Christian, is not binary. It is a beautiful spectrum. In other words, there is no such thing as truth and error. There is no such thing as black and white when it comes to doctrine teaching, theology, but everything is a blurry gray or a part of a spectrum of many different colors, and you pick and choose whatever color fancies you the best. But how does her false profession of faith line up with the teaching of the word of God. Well, let's think this through this morning by highlighting the twin truths that are taught in verse 9. First, Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully God. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells. In the person of Jesus Christ is the fullness of deity, the fullness of God. And as we've seen in previous weeks, Paul taught and defended this truth in the first chapter. Specifically, he teaches us two ways that the deity of Christ is evident. Number one, he is Lord of the original creation. Look back with me at chapter 1. And verse 15, he, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And we spend considerable time studying the meaning of that word firstborn in the Bible and came to understand the consistency of scripture and that this is speaking of the preeminence of position. 
that Jesus Christ is the preeminent one. He is the exact image of the invisible God, as Hebrews chapter 1 tells us. But also, verse 16 goes on to say to us that not only is he preeminent, but he is the creator himself. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So the eternal son of God is the agency of creation. And everything in the universe was created through him and for him. And, verse 17, he is before all things, that is, he is the preeminent one, and in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ is reigning as the king of creation, holding all of his creation together for his honor and glory. Now, why is this so significant for us to Remember this time of year that Jesus is fully God. If you turn back to the Gospel of John in the first chapter, you can see how essential this doctrine is to biblical Christianity. As the Holy Spirit leads the Apostle John to pen this Gospel, the good news of Christ according to John, He begins in a surprising place. He begins where none of the other gospel writers begin. John begins in eternity past to demonstrate that long before Bethlehem, the Son of God existed. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word... And the word was with God, and the word was God. He, that tells us that the word is a he, that the word is a person. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's crystal clear. The identity of the Son of God is that he is the eternal word of God who was with God for all of eternity. Not only was he with God, but all things were made through him. He is the agency of creation. Without Christ, nothing that has been made was made. More than that, verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You notice how John switches very, very subtly, transitions from Christ being the author of creation, the material creation, to also teaching us that Jesus Christ is the giver of spiritual life. In him was life. Not just the life 
that enabled him to create everything that we see, but also the life that shows up as light that is piercing spiritual darkness. And this light, the light of Christ, the light of the gospel, shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overpower it, cannot overcome it, cannot overshadow it. The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ is more piercingly powerful than anything in the darkness of the world that we live in. This is the truth. This is what God's word teaches. Jesus is fully God, and as fully God, he is the Lord of the original creation. Go back to Colossians chapter 1, and we see, secondly, that he is Lord of the new creation. So not only is he Lord of the physical creation, but following the example of the Apostle John, he is also the Lord or the author of the new creation. And by new creation, we are speaking here about this new family of God that God is creating even now through the gospel made up of men, women, and children from every nation and tribe and tongue in this world to form the family of God, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He, that is the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the Father is the one who transfers us out of the kingdom of darkness. How does he do that? Through the light of the gospel that Jesus brought into the world. He then transfers us from that domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. The kingdom where Christ is king. Christ is Lord of the new creation, that is, of all true Christians. And it is in him that we find redemption. It is in him that we find freedom from enslavement to sin. It is in him that we find forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. That's this new creation, this new worldwide family of God. Jesus is the head, that is, he is the authority and the leader and the life giver of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And then go to chapter 2 and verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the what? Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. 
And because of that, because Jesus is the Lord of the new creation, because Jesus should be the functional Lord, therefore, of every believer, Paul then warns us in verse 8, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, to not follow worldly philosophy and unbiblical teachings and counsel, but only follow that which is according to Christ. So clearly, the Word of God teaches that Jesus Christ is fully God. He is the second member of the Trinity, or the eternal triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He created the universe, and he accomplished the work of redemption in order to bring into existence the new creation, the church, the worldwide family of God. Jesus is fully God. But there is a second truth I want us to think about this morning, and that is Jesus is fully man. Back to verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. But then there is this crucial last word in verse 9, bodily. This complete fullness of Godhood dwells in the Son of God bodily. The fullness of deity that dwelt in the eternal Son of God before Bethlehem now dwells within a human shell, the shell of a human body. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that it is the humility of Christ that moved him to willingly lay down the voluntary use of some of his divine attributes so that he could fully live in this world in the fullness of real humanity so that he could then take that life to the cross as a legitimate substitute for us. The New Testament warns us that the greatest threat to the church has always been from within the church, not from the outside. The greatest threat comes from pastors on Twitter who say that you don't have to believe that Christmas is historically correct as long as you believe something about Christmas. The greatest threat comes from so-called Christian teachers and pastors and chameleon Christians who do not believe in the authority of the Bible. One heresy being spread by unsaved Christians in the early days of the church was Gnosticism. And by unsaved Christians, what I mean is so-called Christians who were actually unbelievers. Gnostics were chameleons in the early church. 
Their belief system was a mixture of religion and philosophy that taught that matter is evil and the spirit is good. And therefore, they had a problem with the human body being connected to the Son of God because the human body is material and therefore evil. And so they concluded, therefore, that the Son of God could not have become a man. And so what they tried to do was adapt Christ into their system. And they did that by basically saying that Jesus Christ remained a spirit, not truly a human being who walked this earth. But there's a massive problem with that. There are hundreds of witnesses. There were hundreds of living witnesses at the time that the New Testament was being written. Witnesses of the risen Christ. The evidence is overwhelming concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. These historical facts connected, of course, to the scriptures, verifying the scriptures, not that we need them to verify the scriptures because the scriptures are in themselves the very word of God, but those facts obliterate the lies. The evidence swallows the lies whole. True Christianity is not some watered-down, compromised version of history. But it stands upon the solid foundation of historical facts that are verified by this testimony of the scriptures. Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God who became a man, who lived a sinless life, who then died a sacrificial death and three days later rose from the dead and then later ascended into heaven. To deny this is not only complete foolishness, but it will also lead to eternal death and condemnation. So notice the attention that Paul gives to Jesus' humanity in the first two chapters of Colossians. Notice first, that he is the mediator of our reconciliation. As being fully man, Jesus Christ is able to be the mediator of our reconciliation. Look at verse 19 of chapter 1. Verse 19 is extremely similar to 2 verse 9. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased To dwell. It pleased the Father for all the fullness of the deity of the eternal Son of God to dwell within the physical body of Jesus Christ. It pleased Him. Now, why would it please the Father for the eternal Son of God to leave the glories of heaven, to leave the presence of the Father and the Holy Spirit? It pleased him because it would be through him, verse 20, that he would reconcile to himself all things. 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Why did we need to be reconciled to God through the blood of the cross of Jesus? Because, verse 21, we were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We were in bondage to our sin nature and to the lies of the world. And we were manifesting our sin nature in more ways than any of us care to remember. But now, as believers, he has reconciled in his body of flesh, notice that, verse 22, he has done this reconciliation in his body of flesh by his death. You cannot nail a spirit to the cross. But they did nail a physical body, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the cross. And this is what accomplished our reconciliation. Why did, why did God do this? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God did not do this incredible, awesome work of redemption and reconciliation on the bloody cross of the Lord Jesus simply to put a free ticket to heaven coupon in our back pocket to pull out at the end of our life. He did it to cause radical, immediate, and progressive change in our lives from the moment of conversion to the moment of our death or when we see the Lord face to face that we might become holy and blameless. And that is God's agenda for us as believers. He is remaking us into the image of his son. So the whole point here in verse 19 is is that Jesus has earned the place of preeminence not only because he's the creator, but through his sacrificial death and victorious work on behalf of sinners. The fullness, the totality of divine power and attributes are permanently dwelling in the physical Son of God. Uh, Look with me at Hebrews chapter 2, where the author of Hebrews explains as well why this had to be the case. Why the Son of God had to become fully man. Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 14. I'll give you a little time to get there, Hebrews, to the right in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, what children? The children of God that he mentions in verse 13. 
the spiritual family that the Father is creating and giving to the Son. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So, since we are made up of flesh and blood, so he, the eternal Son of God, took on himself those same things. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The eternal Son of God became fully man so that he could die. He was born to die. He was born to take the penalty that God inflicted upon mankind when Adam and Eve rebelled against him. God warned them, if you eat from this tree, you shall surely die. For God's justice to be carried out with perfection, someone had to die but not just someone. It had to be a someone who was also sinless, who was also fully God, who also had completely fulfilled the law that you and I have broken thousands, millions of times. And through his death, He would deliver us, verse 15. Deliver us from the fear of death and to lifelong slavery to sin. Jesus cannot save us from our sins if he is not both fully God and fully man. If he is not fully God, then he is merely a good man who influenced a bunch of people. A good man who died a martyr's death. If he is not fully man, then his sacrifice on the cross in our place was not a legitimate substitutionary atonement for our sins. He had to be both. He had to be fully both God and man. I love the way the Apostle Paul explains it in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where he says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The man Christ Jesus. He's the one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, the God-man who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus is fully man, and as such, he is the mediator of our reconciliation with God. Secondly, he is the mediator of God's 
presence. He is the mediator of God's presence. He was made, according to the Apostle Paul, <clears throat> to dwell in the fullness of deity. The word dwells, dwells bodily, refers to the very presence of God among us. This is a subtle reference to that glorious name, Emmanuel. God with us. That name that was predicted 700 years before his birth in Bethlehem, that name that the prophet Isaiah reveals to us. Jesus is God with us. The angel then reveals this to Joseph when he was overcome with fear and thoughts of having been betrayed by Mary. Says the gospel says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. As fully man, Jesus is the mediator of God's presence. Finally, let's turn back to John chapter 1 one more time. John 1, we stopped in verse 5 because then John goes on to talk about another John, John the Baptist, who would go before the Lord Jesus and announce his coming. John works to distinguish between John the Baptist and Jesus, the Son of God. It says in verse 11 that he, that is the Son of God, the Word, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those are still the same two responses to Jesus Christ. Those have always been the two responses to Jesus Christ. Those who reject him, who do not receive him, as the eternal Son of God made man, and those who do believe in his name. And those who believe in his name are born again by God, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Miraculous conversion takes place the moment a sinner turns to Jesus. And verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, lived among us, tabernacled among us is what that means. So in the Old Testament, God would meet with his people. He gave them instructions to build a tabernacle, a place where sacrifices were offered and they could approach God on his terms, not on their terms. 
And that's the difference between a religious person and a person who's truly saved. A religious person attempts to approach God on their own terms. A true believer in Christ comes to God on God's terms. They could come to the tabernacle in obedience to the word of God, offer their sacrifices, and be in the very presence of God. God came down in a pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, and tabernacled among his people. All of that, whether it was the tabernacle or later the temple, looked forward to the day in which God himself would not come down in a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud, but he would come down in a person. And that person, that word of God, became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the eternal Son of God who became man, fully God, fully man, to be our sin-bearing Savior and our glorious Lord. And this is the faithful teaching of the scriptures concerning Jesus Christ. I thought it would be good for us this morning as we come to a close in our message to recite together two parts of our church's statement of faith. The EFCA statement of faith is that which we adhere to as a church. And there are two sections concerning Jesus Christ. And I think it would be good for us to stand together and to together read and profess. The early church often professed their doctrine together. Let us do that this morning. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. Another statement. We believe that Jesus Christ, as our representative and substitute, 
shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. Father, we thank you for these truths that we have declared, not man-made doctrine, but concise statements that are drawn from your scriptures, the truth that you have revealed to us concerning your son. We are, rem- <clears throat> we are reminded, <clears throat> we are reminded, Lord, this morning that the gospel is your gospel. It is your good news to us as sinners that you so loved us that you sent your son. He willingly obeyed you and came to this earth, was born of the Virgin Mary, did not have a sin nature because he was not born in Adam, but born miraculously. And he then took that sinless life that he faithfully lived on this earth to the cross, paid for our sins. We thank you that he is the complete Savior, our rescuer from the kingdom of darkness, the one who forgives us our sins and makes it possible for us to be adopted into your family. God, I pray that these wonderful truths would fill our hearts and our minds in the days and weeks ahead as we celebrate his first coming. And Lord, may you do your work in each of our hearts to bring each of us to the place where you know we need to be brought to by the power of your spirit through the word that he gave to us. For the glory of Jesus, we pray.